Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. The Holy Spirit is in the room. Um, uh, that is a promise that He is in the room. Uh, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? This is a first person song. This is a first person song, okay? I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. But then, but then this psalmist throws all of us in here. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I, I got to move. Uh, okay, um, I, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word or, or promises or, or statements. That's how it's translated. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning, more than watchmen in the morning. You see the self-talk there? Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. There's a very old uh, French translation of this particular verse that says, um, he has a thousand ways to save you. I love that. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is a 3,000-year-old psalm about forgiveness. The people of God, long before Jesus was born, leaned into their faith that God would not hold their sins against them. Who could stand if he did that? He would offer them forgiveness, that their hope wasn't in anything other than his grace and mercy. And they waited. They waited. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. For that forgiveness for that salvation to come. We're talking about forgiveness tonight. We've already talked about it twice this school year. Last semester we talked about how because of the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually change. That we could be made new. That God can give us a new nature and a new life. You might remember uh, if you were here uh, an Anderson Cooper and, and Dr. Cornell West video where Anderson Cooper um, asked Dr. Cornell West, he said, do you really think we could change? Dr. West said, oh, yes. A bunch of people stopped coming to the house because I talked about white privilege. After that, maybe we'll lose some more now, I don't know. Uh, Dr. West said, oh, yes, right? And, and we also talked about, because that, that was the first week, there was another week where we talked about how forgiving others is intrinsically linked to the forgiveness that we receive from God. We, the forgiven ones, are called to forgive like we have been forgiven. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer a little bit later, and you might notice a line in there that you, that you, that you have prayed a lot. Maybe you've never prayed it, I don't know, but this is the way Jesus taught us to pray, and it's a bit scary. The way in which we forgive others is intrinsically linked to the way in which we receive forgiveness from God. And we even talked about the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. We spent a little bit of time talking about that, because those are two totally different things. Forgiving somebody and being reconciled with somebody are different things. I commend to you Matthew chapter 18. And, and you can also just talk to me sometime. I love talking about the Bible, so we can, we can hang out and talk. Um, but I, I'm convinced, I've been convinced that I've jumped too far ahead in a conversation about forgiveness. I've assumed something that shouldn't be assumed. That, that you know that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. 
That in Christ Jesus, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm fired up about this right now because of a text I received this weekend from an alum of the house. Keely, will you throw this up on the screen? This is from a friend of mine, an alum of the house who just texted me. Since you were a key person in helping me get through the abortion in college, I figured I would share this with you. Ever since then, I kind of told myself that my punishment would be that I never had a son. Uh, that the sin I committed would mean I was cursed from being able to have a son. And then I found out that I was having a boy. And I got really excited. And then the last nine months, I was terrified that something was going to happen during the pregnancy because of my sin. And then today, during labor, a bunch of uh, shit went wrong. And I thought, And I thought, uh, here it comes. This is my penalty. This person, a good friend of mine, this person is uh, faithfully involved in the life of their local church. He confesses and he repents of his sins often. He, he, he could totally write down on a piece of paper um, that he knows that he's forgiven. And yet, for the past decade... He's believed that he has had a penalty to pay. That forgiveness of Jesus wasn't enough. That Jesus being on the throne in all things, having to answer to him, is not enough. He's been forgiven by God, but there's still a penalty to pay. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Christ came to save sinners, friends. He came that we might have life and life abundantly. And he gives us that life through the forgiveness through his forgiveness at the cost of his own blood, requiring only that we receive it. The forgiveness of Jesus is more than enough, and there is nothing else to pay. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you might have wished that I prayed that my words would be holy before I read that text. Um, as I've been thinking about this text, uh, that was two days ago, three days ago, I got the text, um, and about, about how the forgiveness of Jesus is enough. I'm convicted that in many ways it's easier for me to challenge you to forgive others than it is for me to tell you that you're forgiven. Like, it's an indictment on the church that, that, that when Christians don't forgive each other and forgive others, for sure. We are called to be little Christs, that's what Christian means, right? The body of Christ, his hands and feet on this planet, or the fullness of him who fills all in all, or you can use your biblical language or your casting crowns metaphors or whatever thing you do. But like, but the, it's like such an inside joke, wow. Uh, pass on casting crowns, you're fine. Um, but the, uh, but, but it's, a, it's an indictment on us when we are not extending forgiveness the way Jesus extends forgiveness for sure. I, I just realized I was convicted myself that I wonder if the reason why I jumped to some other topics is because it's scarier for me to say that you're forgiven than it is for me to say you should forgive others. Because when I begin talking about your need for forgiveness, aren't I outing you as somebody who needs it? Like, look, every, every single person in this room, it's probably all of us, but it's definitely somebody next to you. Um, every, we know, everybody in this room knows somebody who doesn't really think they do anything wrong. You got a roommate, a parent, 
a boyfriend, girlfriend, an ex, for sure. Like, you know, you got these things, these people in your life that, like, you, that they think in certain ways that they're not, they don't do anything wrong, you know. Um, now, I want you to imagine walking up to that person and saying, I want you to know that I forgive you. How are they going to receive that? Now, it might be not, it's a nice thing you're doing, right? You're forgiving them for hurting you and, and sinning against you. But if they don't think they've done anything wrong, how are they going to receive that? Not well, right? Because in saying, I forgive you, you automatically imply that they have wronged you. When we hear that Jesus Christ has offered you forgiveness, it implies that you have wronged God. That you have fallen short of the glory of God, are dead in your trespasses, and wholly dependent upon His grace and His mercy for forgiveness. The biblical witness and the testimony of the church for millennia have been crystal clear about this, friends. There's no ambiguity here. We are dead in our sins, and we need help. We cannot stand before God on the basis of our own work and life. We only stand before Him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Keely, would you put up the passage from Colossians chapter 2? This is one of many. You were dead. This is, of course, to the church in Colossae, so you can decide how much it it should apply to you. I'm going to tell you it does. Uh, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God, then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. This is the moment in the youth group where I would give you nails and hammers and a cross up here. I'll have you write down your sins. And then anonymously, of course. Um, this, is one of, this is one of the most basic teachings of Jesus Christ and his disciples, friends. The sober diagnosis that we are helpless, dead. The New Testament writers talk about all the time in the life of Jesus as it's recounted in our various gospel accounts. We see Jesus over and over again moving toward those people who could not help themselves. Paralytics, social outcasts, systemically marginalized, those who were caught in cycles of sin, unable to escape, People who over and over again threw themselves desperately at Jesus. They did not look dignified and put together. They threw themselves at him, not because they thought they deserved it, but because they were desperate and they cast their lot with his kindness and his mercy rather than what society told them they deserved. I encourage you, actually, as you hear stories from the life of Jesus for the rest of your life, I encourage you to look for this theme Over and over, people call him merciful and gracious. Not, Jesus, you made a fantastic decision picking me. Good job. People talk about their own unworthiness. In the middle of a crowd, they get on their knees. I know it's really hard for us, and this is going to potentially really load the end of this night when when I invite you all to pray. Our prayer team every night uh, has volunteers that want to pray for you, people that would love to pray for you and with you. Um, But, but you know, we often don't ask for prayer. Sometimes because we don't even know what to pray for, um, and and we feel weird about the whole thing. But a lot of us, I really think it's like the social stigma. It's like, I don't want to go up and be seen in in some way and have people wonder what I'm being prayed about or whatever. I feel it too. I feel it too. I, this one Sunday recently, I, I walked to the back of the church and asked somebody to pray for me, and my wife is, didn't say, like, what did you pray for? But I know she was thinking it, right? I mean, she's like, what did he go pray for? What is he, what is he doing? You know? and, and I had that thought in my head. I know that's a real thing. 
But when you read the gospel accounts, you see these people who are willing to be totally undignified in the eyes of the people around them. Who are you to come near Jesus? And he calls somebody daughter. Who are you to come near Jesus? He calls him son. People, the disciples say, send them away from you, Jesus. And he says, what are you talking about? Let them come to me. Pay attention to who are the people that keep coming to him and what are the common themes that you see. Who are the people that he keeps going toward and healing, not just confronting. Feeding, not just confronting. Christ came to save sinners. But how many of us try not to be sinners so that Christ will save us? At one point, Jesus tells this parable of a very religious person and a social outcast going to pray. One of them, he says, uh, lifts, this is Luke chapter 18, one of them lifts up his hands and says something like, you know, God, thank you so much that I'm not like that guy. Lifts his eyes to heaven and recounts his deeds and says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like that, dude. You must must love me, I guess. I don't know what the, the subtext is there. He's so impressed with himself. Now, many of us don't wear the kind of religious regalia, and and you might uh, not pray in that very particular way, but how many of us have something like that going on that we think we're established before God because we don't sin in the way other people do? That I actually feel okay as long as there's an other crowd that doesn't do what I do or that does things I don't do? I feel justified sitting next to somebody that's, that's more, I don't know, they, they, depending on your crowd, y'all, I'm going to offend y'all equally here just for a second, okay? But like some of you are like, uh, like at least I'm not like, a, like I go to parties all the time and I get hammered drunk and I sleep around all the time. At least I'm like that person, so I must be all right. This person's like, at least I'm not like an uptight, righteous prick. You know, like God came to save sinners, so he's talking to me. I mean, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, at least I'm not like that political party. At least I'm not like that, uh, I don't know, whatever your thing is. How many of us think we, establish, we are established before God because we're not like somebody else? There's this other guy Jesus talks about too, right? There's two of them that went to pray, and one, it's a parable Jesus tells. And, and, and one of them, this other guy, he gets on his knees, and it says he doesn't even look to heaven, and he beats his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth, that guy walked home justified. Christ came to save sinners. Do you know that second to the Lord's prayer, there is no other prayer in history that's been uttered more by God's people than this one. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Second to the Lord's prayer, this is the most uttered prayer in the history of the world. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a great spiritual discipline to capture a prayer. Like, I think I, uh, last week, at the end of the sermon, I gave some suggestions for prayer. And as Adam Weitzcarver, the director of Chat Hop, uh, which, whatever, uh, he and I were talking um, about prayer. And this was actually one of the things we were talking about, is how important it is for us uh, as followers of Jesus to develop, like, little shorthand ways to pray quickly in the moment all the time. There's certain things I always pray before I come up front. Always. And it's between me and God, whatever. This is like one of those like kind of people sometimes will call them like breath prayers where like you can say it in a breath. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This has been prayed all the time. This is like, this is what the people of God are about. Listen, this prayer, if you can keep that up just for a minute, that'd be great. This prayer is not self-deprecating. 
This prayer isn't a negative view of the world. This isn't a little more harsh than it needs to be. This is sober and honest. The followers of Jesus are called to be utterly realistic in this world. We don't look at the world and say, you know, with a few positivity and mindfulness tricks, I don't think anybody kill each other anymore. We don't look at sex trafficking, which takes place around the world, and think if everybody just had nicer parents, then the sex trade would totally die. We don't look at the envy and gossip and bitterness and deceitfulness, which exists in and among this community, okay? And among all the communities of the world, we don't, we don't see all of that and think, you know, if everybody was just told that they were super special and they believed it, then all the problems would go away. We look at the world as it really is. The beauty and wonder of each human being and the horror and reality of sin. And we say that we need help. Have mercy on us, God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. First John chapter 1 Verses 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, and yet we live in a culture where it's kind of mean to call something a sin. Like saying something is a sin rather than saying it's a sickness is a bit oppressive today. It's fashionable to say that every single one of us was born wholly good and we just learned to be evil. That's a conditioning thing. We're born saints. And if just left alone or with the right kind of like attachment and eye contact and Mozart music and, the, 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 you know, whatever, the, the, the filters on YouTube kids or whatever the thing is, then we would all be saints in the world. If we would just construct the right family model and educational structure, a child would grow up and never do harm to anyone. That's what we believe in our culture, right? It's really tough for us, though, because we don't, that, that does not explain so much of the world to us. It's just not true, actually. Where in the world, amongst all the cultures of history, do you find a single generation without sin? We're a people riddled with it. And with a warring nature inside of us. The Apostle Paul said this perfectly when he said, every time I try to do good, I can't. I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. It's in Romans chapter 7. I want to do good, but I don't. And, and, and I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to want to do good, but not do it? Or to want to avoid doing evil and doing it anyway? Do you know what that's like? Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. There's a war going on inside of you. You have a sinful nature which is at war with you and God and the world, and you not only need to be saved from the sins that you commit or have committed or will commit, you need to be saved from the very nature that's warring inside of you. In response to that reality, Paul cries out, who can save me? Or he says, first he says, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And his answer is not a better boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not a little more money. It's I got this war going on inside of me. Who can save me? A better pedigree? That would have saved me. It's not a different Enneagram type. It's not the right podcast or a different job or train. It's not spiritual disciplines. It's not spiritual disciplines. It's not, well, if I read the Bible a little bit more, then I won't have this warring. 
It's not therapeutic techniques. It's the person Jesus Christ, God's own son. Paul says, who could save me from this body of death? He says, I thank God for Jesus. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it would feel like to have no condemnation? The second half of our verse says, if we, oh, oh, we can go back. Are you forgiven? Uh, uh, It wasn't that big of a wrong. You're fine. Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul would in another place say, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. By grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It's Ephesians chapter 2. This means that for the Christian, our hope is not that we live a good life. It's not that we figured something out. It's not that we believe the right theology. It's not that we've refrained from certain sins or didn't make certain mistakes. It's that we belong to Jesus, body and soul, in this life and the next. I am his and he is mine. That's my hope. That's the hope of the church. And this Jesus, the one by, for, and through whom all things were made, the one who is the judge before whom all creation will give an account one day, that one, that Jesus, he came to save sinners. It's his good pleasure to give them his kingdom and his inheritance. He does it at great cost to himself, giving up his life as a ransom for many. By grace you have been saved satisfying in his life and death the demands of justice in our world and sharing what is rightfully his with all who would have him and any who would receive him. All who are in Christ Jesus are forgiven. And if Christ forgives you, you're forgiven indeed. That's Christianity 101. And this is what my friend forgot. For the past decade, he's believed that he would have to pay for his sins. And do you know why he believed he would have to pay for his sins? Because he believed that Jesus' forgiveness wasn't enough. Or, or he believed in karma, not grace. Grace is so upside down from our world, it's not hard to see why. We think that we have to repent in order to experience the kindness of God. Let me say that again. We think that we have to repent in order to experience the kindness of God. The scriptures would tell us that it's the kindness of God that moves us toward repentance. One of my friends in this room today told me, I often think I have to work for God's grace, not from it. By grace we have been saved, and it's not of our own doing. Christ died for us while we were dead in our sins. While we were dead in our sins. I may have shared this before here. It's so worth uh, another pass if, if, um, if it's even been recent. That there, there, it was like an, a, a light bulb came on, and I was probably my sophomore, junior year in college when this, when this occurred to me. Uh, surely from the scriptures, um, there's a passage in, in uh, John chapters 13 through 17, which have been uh, one of my favorite sort of home bases in the scripture for a long time. And it's located in there in this, this um, final discourse it's called with Jesus uh, and his disciples before he dies. And, and Jesus tells us what the Spirit of God does and what he'll do so that we might be able to know that he is with us and present with us. And one of the things the Spirit of God does is convicts us of sin. 
And it was this light bulb moment when I went, whoa, when I feel convicted of sin, I can already say, before I repented, before I confessed that sin, before I repent of that sin, I can actually right away go, thank you, God, for drawing near to me. Because apart from your spirit moving toward me, I wouldn't even be convicted by this. And I went, what grace that God moves toward me before I even think to turn toward him. You might recall Jesus' very first words on the public scene when he says, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the word repent comes first, but he tells you why you can repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near to you, then you can, you can repent now. This thing is totally flipped from the way we normally think about it. In Jesus, the verdict comes before the trial. We're forgiven ones so that we can begin to live like it. It's so hard for us to believe. Lord, help our unbelief. Here's where I see this uh, in our culture today. Here's where I see this occur the most, where this, this, um, this belief that there's still more to pay, this belief that Jesus' forgiveness isn't enough, or something, where I see this sort of show its head the most is in this one sentence. I don't know if I sent this one to you, Keely. I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. This is where I see this rear its head the most. Friends, you can't, you, you can't forgive yourself. That doesn't even make sense. You can't forgive yourself. Can you imagine, that you, just imagine, imagine you bought me a birthday present and you come to give me this gift. You come to get a, a present, you give me a gift. It's a box, it's from Amazon probably, right? And you, go, you hand it to me and, and, and I say to you, oh, thank you so much for giving me this gift. I just can't give it to myself. I mean, that just logically doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? Like, uh, I don't know, like leave it here on the ground and then I'll pick it up when I'm ready? I, I, I don't, is that what you're trying to say? What would that mean for me to give you a gift and for you to say, I can't give it to myself? Or imagine you had this conversation with literally anyone else other than God. So imagine I sin against you. I would like for you not to imagine this, but for the sake of the exercise. Imagine I sin against you in some horrendous way. Okay? I sin against you in a horrendous way. I want your forgiveness. And then and you come up to me and you say... Jason, I want you to know I forgive you, and I say thank you so much for forgiving me. I just can't forgive myself for the way that I sinned against you. You know what that says? I mean, like what that says? It's so strange. This is the perfect moment in history to talk about this. It says that I care more about my judgment than yours, that even though you're the one I've sinned against, I hold all the power. That's what it says. If I've sinned against you, and you say, I forgive you, Jason, and I say, I need to be the one to forgive me. I appreciate your forgiveness. I want you to know I respect it. I honor that. I even believe that you do. But what matters more than your forgiveness is my forgiveness because I value my words and my judgment more than yours. Do you see that dynamic? Now, that's one thing played out with another human. We don't do that because we would recognize when we're embodied and next to each other and we see facial expressions and whatever, that we would recognize that that's a really awkward interaction. So even if I still felt loaded with guilt and I received your forgiveness and I wasn't sure what to do with it, I probably would just say thank you. I probably wouldn't say, I can't forgive myself, right? Uh, There may be a reason why that's not enough because when you've sinned against another, you've also sinned against God. And so you need God's forgiveness, not just theirs. If that sounds really weird to you, if, if, if one of you sinned against one of my kids, you would need my forgiveness, not just theirs. You need mine too, not just theirs. So too with God and his children. 
Maybe that's one of the reasons. But, but, but do you see, I want you, I want you to see how just weirdly illogical and how relationally frustrating it would be to extend forgiveness to somebody and for them to say, thank you, I just can't forgive myself. It is illogical and relationally it doesn't, it makes sense. It, it actually, well, it does make sense. It says I care more about my judgment than yours. You take that to God and what you're saying is that your word is more powerful than God's. That your judgment is more sure than God's. I know that you forgive me, God. I just don't forgive myself. Which always means that I'm living out of the latter reality than the former. Always. Nobody says, I just can't forgive myself, but I'm free because Jesus forgave me. Nope, nobody says that. I know that God forgives me. I can't forgive myself, so I'm going to just beat myself up a little more. I'm going to wait till I've worked this off. I have a little more penalty to pay. Friends, you do not need to forgive yourself. I wish we would just cut that out of our vernacular. You need to receive forgiveness. You just need to accept it. You need to believe it. You need to open your hands rather than focusing on yourself as the judge that matters most. It's far healthier to say, I know that God forgives me. I'm just struggling to believe it. That's far healthier to say. Then, then turning it around and saying, I know God forgives me, but what really matters is my own judgment. No, what makes way more sense of what's actually going on is that God forgives me. I'm just struggling to believe it. Lord, help my unbelief. That's the prayer, friends. It's not convincing yourself that you're forgiven. It's receiving, on, receiving it on faith in Jesus. Because if you are forgiven in Him, you are forgiven. My friends, um, my friend who sent me that text, uh, his, his son was born this weekend. And I want you to look at how he ended his text. Here it comes. This is my penalty. And then nothing bad happened. And my son was born because Jesus came and died for my son. I, I no longer have to pay for sin as an eye for an eye, and it's pretty cool how God can show grace, and in this moment I feel completely forgiven. He knows now. He knows now. Um, he, 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 his feelings and his thoughts are right now in alignment with the truth that he's been proclaiming with his lips for a decade, that he's forgiven. And it's beautiful. I rejoiced with him. I can't wait. I, I'm going I'm to go out and see his son. I can't wait to see his son. But my heart breaks for the fact that for 10 years, he has lived with this crushing burden and weight. Think about how lonely this would be, right? This thing he's sharing with me, that he thought he was going to have to pay a penalty for this, he never shared this with anybody. Not with his wife, not with his friends. For obvious reasons, right? I mean, can you imagine if his wife's going into the delivery room and he says, just so you know, I have this sneaking suspicion that God's going to punish me because of this abortion, and so that might mean that the baby that you're carrying right now might die while you're in the delivery room. What kind of panic that would put into his wife? Are you kidding me? Or the weirdness of the fact that he already has a daughter and he doesn't want to say, like, I, I didn't think about having a daughter and so I don't want her to feel bad that I think the penalty is about a son and I don't want her thinking, like, son's more than daughter. So all of the weirdness of these things he's been feeling, not only has he been carrying this guilt and this punishment, he didn't feel like he can tell anybody. So in silence and suffering and guilt, he's been professing with his lips that God forgives me. 
but I think I probably have to pay something. And it, this just stirred up a fire in me, friends, because, I, look, I was able to walk with him for a few years while he was in college here. And my heart goes out for you. I do not want you to go through your 20s thinking you've got to pay for the penalty of your sins when Jesus is extending forgiveness to you and to the world. And that is totally counter to the way our culture views forgiveness. Because in our culture, you earn forgiveness. It doesn't even make sense, but we should use a different word. But in our culture, you earn it first. But in God's kingdom, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is like Christianity 101. You are the forgiven ones, which does imply that you are also the ones that need forgiveness. So here's what I want to do to end the sermon tonight. Um, I, want, I want us to spend uh, a little bit of time in silent, silent confession. Um, I encourage you just to say, Lord, is there anything that you want to show me about the fact that you've forgiven me? I encourage you to pray that and just listen for the Lord. And then what we're going to do after a little bit, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite us to pray. Actually, Keely, we put up the Lord's Prayer right now? Um, when we're done, we just leave that up. When we're done, I'll say, now we're going to pray the way the Lord, our Lord taught us to pray. This is uh, Jesus', Jesus disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to, how to pray because you don't know how until you ask for help and you practice and learn. And so Jesus said, pray like this. Um, and so we'll pray that together. I encourage you to pray it out loud with me in a second. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for us to sort of get us into a moment of silence, and then, um, and then we'll come together in a second. Father, send your spirit now uh, to help us, to help us believe that in Jesus Christ we are set free, that you declare us forgiven, and that because of him there is no penalty to pay. For each of my friends in this room, Lord, each person that you have made in this room, help their unbelief now. Um, and, and give them the confessions that they need and the belief that they need to, to grab hold of your promises. Lord, we, uh, we confess that we have sinned against you and our thoughts, our words, and our deeds in things we've done and in things that we haven't done. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, you are the forgiven ones. Now let's pray together the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.